0: All right. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Romans chapter 9. If you don't, we have some Bibles in the chair seats in the pockets in front of you, underneath the seats in front of you. You're welcome to do that. Um, and if you don't have a Bible in a version or a translation that you understand, take the Bible home with you. We replenish them. We want to make sure everyone has a copy of the scripture that they understand, but you're welcome to follow along with us in Romans chapter 9. First off, let me just say this one thing, because this is important. Um, probably the most important thing you're going to hear today. Um, I had no idea that that's what Pastor Rob and Pastor Christine did while Pastor Matt and I were at sectional council on Tuesday. So all I'm saying is like, you know, when the, the, what does it say? When the cats away, the mice will play. Is that how that works? So when he said, I can't go because there's something important we need to do, that was it, just so you know. And it was important, but it gave me a good laugh. I came back and I'm like, oh, so that's what they were doing. That was actually pretty cool. So anyway, it's not the most important thing you're going to hear today, but just being lighthearted about everything. Um, But I do want to encourage you to come to that. That should be a whole lot of fun. Okay, here we are, Romans chapter 9. If you were with us last week, uh, we took a shot at walking through the first half of what I believe is the most or one of the most controversial debated chapters in the entire Bible. The whole focus on what it's about is about God's unconditional or sovereign choice. That God, in his infinite power, has the ability and does choose Choose what? A person, a nation, purposes, plans. Yes, God is a God of choice, that He is intentional. And Paul lays out, beginning in chapter 9, this whole concept of God's choice. Now, the first. Eight chapters of Romans, if you recall, was broken up in the wrath of God and the grace of God. The first three chapters, mainly the wrath of God, we turned a corner, talked about the grace of God. And just as a reminder for you, if, if you ever find yourself in a place where you find yourself becoming less reverent towards God, go back to chapters 1 and 3, 1 through 3. Because there's something about us looking at ourselves and seeing ourselves for who we really are without God it humbles us to be more appreciative for what God does for us. Does that make sense? Please. I'm saying that honestly. It's like in Matthew chapter seven, when we talk about, you know, not judging and we talk about how you're supposed to not judge people. And, and Jesus says, you know, don't, don't look at the speck in someone else's eye until you pull the lock out of your own eye. And people will misinterpret that passage saying, you're not supposed to judge anyone. You're not supposed to confront anyone on difficult things. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying before you take a step to have a hard conversation with someone else about something that they need to change. Look at yourself and recognize what you need to change because it does two things. One, it challenges you to change and it humbles you so that when you go to them, you don't go to them with closed fists, you go to them with open arms. Make sense? So it's the same kind of thing. Wrath of God, the grace of God, chapter 8, walking in the spirit, the ultimate demonstration of God's grace, his spirit living in each one of us. 9, we turn a corner, and for 9, 10, and 11, he's speaking specifically about the nation of Israel, but there are applications in the chapter that apply not just to Israel, apply to all mankind, and especially the Roman Christians that he's talking about. So last week, we looked at two components of God, his character, not just the theological debate of who he chooses and how he chooses, but what it means, what it is, and what it is not when we talk about God's unconditional choice. Last week we talked about God's inc- unconditional choice was not dependent on our privileges. So if you think you were born into a better place, a house of royalty, maybe you have generations of Christians, God doesn't look at you more favorably over someone else, wanting to save one over the other, simply because your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, all were from one line. And he was talking that about Israel. Just because you were a a son or a daughter of Abraham, Father Abraham, doesn't mean that you're part of Israel. You may have come from a great place, but God doesn't prefer you over others just because your heritage says You came from Israel. And that applies to us today because most of us aren't Jewish. Most of us aren't from Jewish backgrounds, but yet God doesn't look at us different than others. And that's really encouraging to know that it's not dependent on our heritage. The second thing we talked about last week was God's unconditional choice is dependent on his promises. And that it had nothing to do with our abilities, it had nothing to do with our performance. God chooses, God works, he plans, and it's because God made a covenant. With Abraham and promised to fulfill that covenant by swearing upon himself that he would do it because he is God. So the things that we see God do in this world aren't because we finally crossed the line of obedience. And he said, I'm so glad that man is choosing the right thing to do. Now I can save them. God already chose to make a way. And that way is Jesus Christ. He promised to do it in Genesis chapter 3. He covenanted with Abraham that it would happen in Genesis 15. And we see Jesus on the scene in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when he hung on that cross and he said, it is finished. The decision was final and the war was won. We have an opportunity to be in relationship. And that was a promise that was made by God and fulfilled by God. But Paul wrapped up the first half of chapter 9, and we looked briefly at it last week uh, in verses 16 through 18. I want to start there because I think that's a good place for us to, to jump off of into the second half of Romans chapter 9. In 16, he says, It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What is he talking about? God's choice, God's sovereign choice, God's salvation. God's salvation. Offered to us, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And if you were here last week and you read that with me, that was one of the moments when I paused and I said, remember how I said some things in the passage may be harder for you to, to grasp or you might struggle with to say, is that saying that God, you know, he, if he chooses to damn people versus he chooses to bless people, what's going on there? And he is talking to Moses in that passage about Pharaoh and about Israel. But we have to remember that we're not just saying that God chooses to curse people. That's the easiest way to interpret that. Flip it around. When man wants to curse people, because we are imperfect people, God can choose to offer a heart of compassion and grace to anyone, even when we don't think they're worthy of it. And that speaks to the character and the heart of God. So, if 18 is true, though, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those he wants to harden, Um, it's really easy to interpret this from the perspective that, well, God can choose what he's going to do. God's in control. God's the one that lays the whole plan out. And if he's the one that's laying everything out for us, so what? If he determines all of this and it has nothing to do with our effort or our behavior, what is the point? And maybe that's the conclusion you come to when you look at that. Well, if God's really in control and all these things are lined up and he chooses some and he doesn't choose others, what's the point? Why am I even believing that I have any say in any of this? Or maybe I don't have any say in it. And if you're asking that question, great. Because Paul knows that that's the question his readers are going to ask. And he answers it beginning in verse 19. He says, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? And there it is. If God is all of, in control of all of this, and he's doing everything, and, and he is who he is, well, why are we held accountable? I mean, he's the one that's doing it, Right? Why would we be held accountable? Why would he blame us or condemn us for something that God has already laid out? Why? That's today's message title. But why, God? <laughs> How many of us have ever asked that question to God? But why? This is the tension we wrestle with. What's the point? And why should we be held responsible? If God's unconditional choice is the final word, what control do we have over anything? Anything? If he's in charge, why should he judge us for a path that is part of his will? Does unconditional choice determine the outcome of our eternity? Why? What do we do with this? This is one of the tensions that people wrestle with in the passage. And like I said last week, I'm going to say the same thing this week. We are not going to try to focus on the theological tension about this is exactly why we think this is true or that is true. Here's what I think really matters, because there are, I have a friend of mine that I know that is actually working through this right now, and they're looking at both perspectives very objectively, because there are very smart, wise people that have asked the question on how God chooses and what choosing looks like versus free will. And they've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years to figure out what the truth is. And, and there are people that are passionate on both sides to say, do we really have a choice or does God give us free will and how do those two come together? We're not going to try to understand that this morning because I don't think it's really something we're going to fully be able to understand. But what we can do is that we can see two attributes of God's character in the second half of Romans 9 this morning. And I think they're really important and I think when we see them, it will change the way we view God and that as a result will change the way we live in this world. So the question is, why? Why does God still blame us? Why would he still find fault in all of this? Doesn't that make sense that we should ask God that question if he's really in control and he has an unconditional choice? Well, Paul gives us an answer. And the answer is this. Why? Because. Because. Isn't that a great answer? Because. Look what he says in verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Here we go. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Think about this. Isn't that amazing? He talks all about God's choice. He talks about his sovereign choice, that he can do it. He's unlimited. He's fully powerful. He can choose. He can give mercy. He can put his wrath on those or continue to leave his wrath on those. All this stuff applies, he said. So what role do we have and why would God do this? And Paul's first response is because. And that is a difficult answer for us to deal with. Now what he's not saying He's not saying that you can never ask God questions. That's not what he means here. What he's specifically saying, I believe, is that the creation can never question and should never question the creator in relation to his sovereignty or his unconditional choice. He's God. We are not. That's what he's saying. And if we're being really honest with ourselves... If we're being really honest with ourselves, when I ask that question or I hear people ask the why question, sometimes it's because they just genuinely want to know the answer to feel good about something. But if we're being really honest and we take a step back, many times we want to know the answer so we can judge it. Because we want to know the reason behind it. And sometimes the reason behind it is something we may not like. And therefore we'll judge it. Sometimes it will make sense to us, but many times it won't. So this is like a cliffhanger in many ways to say, what what is Paul trying to tell us here? Well, remember, God's unconditional choice means that it's unlimited. It means he's unrestricted in what he can do, that it's unconditional and it's his ability to do what he chooses to do. So what does it say about his character? The first point is that God has authority over us. We do not have authority over God. Think about that just for a moment. God has authority over us. We do not have authority over God. Because is probably one of the worst answers I ever heard from my parents growing up. I couldn't stand hearing that answer. And if my dad's watching this morning, I couldn't stand that answer. (laughs) Why? Because. Why couldn't I stand the answer? Two things. Number one, it ended the discussion. If it was a discussion. The conversation was over at that point, and I was not able to get an answer. There was no answer from what was coming after that. Number two, it reminded me that my parents had authority over me. I did not have authority over them. You see, there are some times that you can ask a question and you'll get an answer. But sometimes, parenting requires you to just say, because. And there can come an explanation later at some point, but in the immediate, it's just because. And that is a very hard thing for anyone to deal with, especially when you're a kid. You know the beauty of actually not liking it when you're a child is you get to grow up, have your own kids, and then you get to do it to them. <laughs> Isn't that fun? I mean, not because you want to make them squirm, but sometimes that's the natural overflow. Of, of what happens, you know, so you look at it and go, wow, now I understand why my parents said and did what they said. So if you're a student here this morning and your parents have told you because, there may be a good reason behind it. Maybe you're not going to understand it. Or maybe you just need to remember that your parents have authority over you. You don't have authority over your parents. This is the same thing we need to remind ourselves of in relationship to God the Father as we are called sons and daughters for those who have faith in Christ. You with me? Okay, good. Okay, so we need to remind ourselves that God is God, that he is in charge, that he is the authority, and he is worthy of our reverence and worthy of our respect. This is why I think it's, it's hard for us sometimes to grasp this because today we live in a world of presidents. We live in a world of democracy. We can easily see God as someone to bargain with, challenge, or question, because that's the context of the world that we live in. People disrespect world leaders all the time. People disrespect presidents of nations all the time. It's far too common a practice. It happens all of the time, and it doesn't matter who's leading. People feel this freedom to be able to say and do whatever they want within a certain level of measure. But the difference is that when Paul wrote this to the Christians in Rome, he wrote it during a time where there weren't democracies, as we understand democracies. There were kings. There were Caesars. In those times, what the kings said were like the words of God because to a lot of people, many considered them to be gods. They lived in that context. Israel didn't have a democracy before they were disbanded. They had kings. The Romans lived under the rule of a Caesar, and the Caesar was like a king. What he said went. In fact, if you look historically, you can see about um, 60 years or 70 years before this book was ever written, January 1st, 42 B.C. is an important date in Roman history, because January 1st, 42 B.C., Julius Caesar, many of you have heard the name Julius Caesar, was declared a god by the Roman Senate. It was the first time in history that a Roman citizen was officially deified and it took place after his assassination, about 14 months after he was assassinated. What Rome did was they built a temple to him next to the Roman Forum and temples were built in honor of him in cities all across the Roman Empire. So when Paul is writing to the Roman Christians and he's saying, sometimes you ask the question, why? Sometimes God's response is because. Because we need to be reminded of the fact that he has authority over us. We don't have authority over him. He is God. We are not. Now, that is hard for us to get sometimes. I struggle with it sometimes. But God, don't you love me enough to give me an answer? Don't you care about me enough to figure out and show me what the plan is in all this? And let's be honest, when When things happen to people we love, other followers of Christ especially, that are tragic or the way they happen, don't we want to try to give words that comfort them? Don't we want to try to give solutions to people so that maybe that will bring some comfort? I've seen that happen, and sometimes the words are very comforting. And if we're being real honest, though, sometimes the words people say are really foolish. Sometimes people try to make connections that were never intended to be there. Sometimes it's not about what we can say to someone that's struggling. Sometimes it's just the fact that we're present that matters the most. So we understand that we want the answers. And Paul's making it very clear. When you want to look at the character of God, you may not always know the answer. There's a story back in the book of Job. It's the entire book of Job. And some of you know the story of Job. Wealthy man, loved God, righteous man. He had all of this stuff. Satan comes and talks to God and says, Job loves you because of everything you've given him. And God says, that's not true. And Satan says, let me take away almost everything he has. So over time, God lets him take away his livestock, his economic prosperity, takes away all of his children, kills them all. His wife and him are the only two left, and his health is even failing as he has boils all over his body. His wife says, curse God and die. And yet he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes the way. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he goes through... 38 chapters or so of listening to his friends as they come and they say a lot of stupid boneheaded things. Some of you can relate to this. Three guys, one after the other, talk about stuff. And the fourth guy finally speaks towards the end of Job. He's the youngest guy and he challenges Job and he says, you say you didn't sin, but you actually did. And he talks about it a little bit. And then all the way at the end of the chapter, by the way, his sin was not the reason that God did everything. It was in the process of what God did that um, he was challenged to say, no, you did actually do some things that you shouldn't have done, and he talks about it. At the end of Job, in chapter 38, and we're not going to read it, but I just pulled out this one quote that God talked to Job, and he began to respond to Job when Job was asking all these questions, and he says to Job, now brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will teach me. Can you hear the cynicism in that? And then he writes all these things out. And he says, like, where were you when I created the foundations of the world, Job? Where were you when I did this? Where were you? Surely you know, Job. Where were you when I did all this? How many of this? What are you going to do? And he talks about all these examples of things. And the whole point of doing all that was there will be things that you think you deserve to understand and know. But be mindful of the fact that I am God and you are not. That is important for us to understand because we lose the reverence of God when we think he deserves or we deserve to have every one of our answers understood and taken and answered every one of our questions answered so we think that but that's not the case there's a reverence that we've lost many times if we believe that in isaiah 55:8 through 9 isaiah says or god says this through the prophet isaiah look he says for my thoughts are not your thoughts Neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What is he saying? You don't think you know as much as you do. You don't know as much as you think you do. I'm God. There's things that I can understand that you will never understand. Think about that. I mean I was this is really a silly example because you know we're not talking about pets and animals but you know I was hanging out with my dog yesterday and uh, like he loves to go outside in the patio and I take a big black rubber ball and he always looks for me to throw it and every time true to form I'll pretend to throw it and he runs up the hill halfway he turns around and then he comes back down again and then I take it and I get ready to throw it again and he runs halfway up the hill and he comes back down again he's like when are you going to throw it every time I do this the dog continues to do that every time and I look at him I'm like you're dumb when are you going to learn that the first two or three times I do this, I never throw the ball? So maybe he goes instead of halfway up the hill, he goes a quarter of the way up the hill. But I thought about it and I said, here's why, okay? I mean, one, he's a dog, but he's a child. He's only like 20 months old, you know? So everything he does is like a kid. Everything's like a little kid. He's Rammy running around doing what he does. And I think about that and I say, I can do things, whether we're talking about a dog or we're talking about a young child, that they will never understand. And I can try to explain it to them and they will never understand because when it comes to intellect and understanding, my ways are much higher than my kids or my animals. God's ways are higher than ours and they always will be. And we'll never fully understand what he does and why he does it. And it's important for us to understand that he has authority over us. We do not have authority over him. And when we grasp that, when we grasp that and we recognize that it's not wrong to ask God questions. But it is wrong to question God. He's not, imp- he's not saddened or he's not taken back by us questioning. We just need to check our hearts. When we ask a question of God, that's different than questioning him. Because questioning him makes it feel like we put God on the stand. And we're in a trial. And God owes us an explanation. And Paul's saying, he doesn't. He's God. Be mindful of that, and it will change the way you view him. And your humility will grow, and your reverence for him will grow, and your relationship with him will get stronger. The second piece of God's character that we're going to look at begins in verses 22, and it goes towards almost the end of the chapter. And Paul turns a corner here to show us something that I think is super powerful that we need to talk about, beginning in verse 22. Look how he changes it here, and he says this. He's talking about those who God chooses or gives mercy to versus those that he doesn't. He says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And then verse 25, he says, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Paul's second piece that he talks about here, in addition to the authority of God, is this. When God calls us, he doesn't control our choices, he confirms them. When God calls us, he doesn't control our choices. We're not robots. He doesn't control everything that we do, but he will confirm our decisions. And he uses these examples when Paul says, What if God, and I love how he explains that, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? Remember, he's speaking to the Jewish people. And he's speaking to Jewish Christians. And he's saying, at the time that this was written, there was over 2,000 years of history between God and Israel. And if you think about it this way, and you look at the history of Israel, you could say, what if God, after being exceedingly patient, confirmed the decision of those who were rebellious? And he used them to further demonstrate his mercy for those who were being obedient. What if God chose people and revealed himself through the revelation of his goodness and all of creation and gave them an opportunity. And those who chose to follow, he blesses. And those who choose to receive his revelation, he blesses. And those who continue to choose to not follow God, he confirms in their hearts what it is that they are unwilling to do. You see, when you look at Pharaoh in Exodus and you see Pharaoh hardened his heart during the ten different plagues that were there. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. You also see ten different times where God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ten times Pharaoh hardens his heart. Ten times God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But if you look at the order of those things and you look at the wording of it, God is not forcing Pharaoh to disobey him. He is simply confirming what Pharaoh has already chosen to do against God. So think about that this morning. Because I've heard people say things like, well, how could people, how could you not pursue God? How could you not, with the revelation of who God is, how could you not receive that? And I can say, let's take salvation off the table. And let's go all the way back to Romans chapter 1 and make it as simple as we can. Paul says, remember in Romans 1, all creation gives testimony to the evidence of God, right? All creation, he says in Romans 1, gives creation, it gives testimony to the evidence of God so that all men are what? Without excuse, And yet there are people that walk in this world today that put their foot down and say there is no God. So we're starting at the very basic point there. What if God in his great patience bore patiently waiting for them to make a decision? And at some point when they don't make a decision, he gives them exactly what they want. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. First with the nation of Israel. Here's how it worked. Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who became Israel. Israel goes into captivity under Egypt's reign, and then they are brought out after 400 years. Some of you know this story, but that's what happens. They go into the the wilderness for 40 years. They enter into the promised land, and Israel is set up with a king. They have three kings for one nation, and then after the third king, the nation splits north and south, and there are a bunch of other kings. This is what happens after that. God calls the nation. Israel is obedient to his response, and there is a blessing. Then at some point, Israel rebels from God. God's wrath comes upon them. Israel repents. God forgives them and restores. Israel's obedience happens again, and then there's the rebellion. And this is the cycle that happens over and over again. God calls them. They obey. At some point, they begin to rebel. They cry out to God after the wrath of God. He forgives them and restores them. They obey, and they do the same thing over and over and over and over again. It kind of sounds like our lives. There's elements of that that we can identify with. And God is patient. I mean, in, it, I mean, he talked to, to, to Moses and he said, these are a stiff-necked people. That's what he said to Moses about Israel. What is he saying? Man, these people are stubborn. Moses, you go. That's what he said. You go. I don't even want to go. They're your people. You go. And Moses was like, what? He said, no, I'm not going without you. Because if you don't go with us, Lord, nothing will distinguish us from the rest of the world. Without your presence, we just look like everybody else. We need your presence. So this happens over and over and over again. If you look at the history of the nation of Israel, why were they, people have asked many times, why were they in captivity for over 400 years? Well, in Genesis 15, verse 13, scriptures answer that. Look what it says in 15, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will serve and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Look at 15. You, however, will go to your ancestors in a place in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What is he saying there? You're going to be in a place of captivity, and he patiently waits for those who have been rejecting him. So that their sin comes to a place where God puts a stamp of confirmation on it. He's not controlling them, but he will confirm the decisions that they choose to make. And when it comes to a full measure, Israel is brought into the land, and they are destroyed. Fast forward to the book of Jonah. The nation of of the city of Nineveh. God calls Jonah to go into Nineveh, and Jonah goes, no way. And he runs and goes in the other direction. After all the stuff that happens with Jonah in the boat and the fish and three days in the belly of a fish and then the fish throws him up and he finally goes to Nineveh, he travels 500 miles east to get to Nineveh, he gets there and he calls them to repent and they repent. And Jonah climbs up to the top of a hill and he sits there and he waits for God to destroy him. But God doesn't destroy them. Because in verse 2 of chapter 4 he says to God, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity? Think about this. This is the character of God. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah became the judge. These people are evil. They were going to destroy us, and you're forgiving them and giving them mercy? And then in verse 10, the Lord responds to him after he has this really cool encounter with with a leaf and a tree and a plant that sprouts over his head and then withers and dies. The Lord says to him in verse 10, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? What is he saying to Jonah there? I choose who to have compassion on. I choose to have mercy on. And I will wait patiently and wait patiently. And eventually, if they continue to reject me, I will put a stamp Of approval on their choice to reject me. And we need to know that about God because that applies directly to us. I already gave you the example in Romans chapter 1 where the people exchange the truth of God for a lie. But this is something we need to understand and we need to be mindful of this morning. That God does have all authority over all things. But He does, in His goodness, provide an opportunity for us to receive His grace, to receive His salvation, the gift of salvation. And he continues to offer that gift to all who will consider. Jesus didn't die on the cross for only you or only me. The death of one, Scripture says, takes away the sin of what? All. The world. He did it for all. And the answer, and the reason why I'm sharing that with us, is that we, if we look at this as, well, you know, if, if God chooses everyone then I shouldn't have any accountability for what I do or what I don't do. And the second point he makes completely debunks that concept. Because God reveals himself to you. He reveals himself to me. And he says, if you receive what I'm giving to you, you will walk. There will be mercy. There will be compassion. There will be a blessing. I've already given you the opportunity to become alive. What you do with it is your responsibility. What you do with it is your choice. We can't look at God on the other side of eternity and say, well, yeah, but I didn't really know. And he says, you were without excuse. Everything that's around, without excuse. Think about how powerful that is. Think about what that means for every single person in this world. That God is patient. There are people in this world that you and I may look at and say, those people are so far gone. God, I mean, just strike them dead. I've heard people say that about people. I just hope God just takes them all out. And I hear people say that and my heart grieves because I think, you are not God. How dare you make a decision on someone else's eternity that you would kill someone else when you yourself are worthy of death, when me myself am worthy of death. Think about that for a moment. We look at other people that are just evil people in this world and we can say, God, just I wish you'd just kill them all. I wish you'd get rid of those people. Just get rid of them. And in that moment, we want to play God. But if we do that, we're putting ourselves at a place that God never intended us to be. Are you with me? You hear what I'm saying? So important for us to understand. In humility, we need to be able to take a step back and say, Lord, you are God. And things don't always make sense. I think historically, you look at some of the people in prison. I was thinking, you know, um, uh, who was the guy? Was it Jeffrey Dahmer, I think it was? Jeffrey Dahmer that uh, was in prison and he was a serial killer? Ted Bundy? One of these guys. I can't remember which one it was. Dahmer or... or, or Ted Bundy made a decision and followed Christ. Billy Graham was there, made a decision to follow Christ before he died. People were livid. You mean to tell me that someone that was a mass murderer that did this and this and this and this, they made a decision to follow Jesus and their eternity is safe. They're going to be with the Lord for eternity. But, but this nice little old grandma here that just makes quilts for everybody but never and refuses to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, they're going to spend an eternity apart from God? And the answer to that is Yes. Because God is God and we are not. And he says to all of us, if you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you will believe in your heart, God raised me from the dead. You will be what? Saved. And that's the beauty of what he says. And that's what he continues and he wraps up in verses 30 through 33. He concludes and he says, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. What is he saying there? You're saying these, these dogs, these Gentiles, remember Jews thought Gentiles were dogs, dirty. These dogs, they're going to inherit the kingdom of God and experience salvation because they brought it by faith, they received it by faith, but Israel who followed the laws and people that did all of the right things will not receive it? Why not? Verse 32, because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And what I think he's really saying there right at the end, the Gentiles received righteousness by faith, and his own Israel did not receive it because they put their trust in the rules, not in God. If I can reword that, it stayed in their heads and never made it to their hearts. Christianity is dead if it stays in your head. The power of God unto salvation is dead if it stays in your head. People can know everything they need to know and want to know about the Bible. You can memorize all 800 plus thousand verses in the scripture, and if it stays in your head, it's dead for eternity. It needs to get to your heart. And that's the beauty of the relationship we can have with Jesus Christ. Our worship team's going to come, and we're going to take a few moments, and and we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. The team's going to um, close in a song this morning, and um, I'm going to encourage you while they are doing that, and you can participate in the song. But I want you to take a few moments, and I want you to reflect upon the awesome power and authority of God. Listen to the words: Let God speak to you in His hope through His holy Spirit today. And at the end of the song, before we pray, dismissal, and you can leave if you need to leave, we are going to invite some of our prayer partners to come up to the front of this build of this church. And if you are here and you have a legitimate need, if you're struggling with something emotionally, physically, it doesn't matter what it is. I want you to think about something during this song and you have time to prepare your heart for this. How big is God to you? Does he see what you're wrestling with? The answer to that is yes, he does. He has full authority. He has full power. He's in control of everything. Ask yourself, God, how big are you to me? And make a decision for God to hear that you know him and you recognize how big he is. The second thing is how compassionate do you see God? You may be far away in some ways. You may think that God's not willing to make a decision, that your situation is just not significant enough to him. Can we just take a step back and recognize that he is great in mercy and he's great in compassion and he's looking to draw all of us to him because he's a powerful God. And then will you choose to respond His revelation. So, as the team sings this song, and it's a song of celebration, take some time and reflect. And afterwards, while we dismiss those that need to leave, you can come up and you can pray with one of us that are here. And whatever need you have this morning, can we just in authority and in unity believe God that He can do what only He can do? Can we do that? Let's do that this morning because He's real, He's alive, and He wants to bring new life to each one of us today. Father, we open our hearts to you this morning. And I just pray there would be a heart of celebration in this church as we worship you and lives will be changed. In Jesus' name we pray.